This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 11th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about all the plastic that's ended up in the ocean. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Plastic is all around us, in our houses, cars, phones, clothes, everything. What happens to that plastic if it isn't properly recycled or disposed of, and instead makes its way into the ocean? Over time, plastics degrade into smaller and smaller bits. What's going to happen as the concentration of these bits inevitably rises? I spoke with Kara Lavender-Law about our current understanding of microplastics in the marine environment and what, if anything, can be done about it. The first time I sailed from Hawaii to San Francisco, it was certainly very odd to see recognizable items periodically drift by the side of the ship, things like a toothbrush or a teapot or a bucket. But I think what was most surprising was the number of small fragments that were being collected in the plankton net. Outside of the ocean's subtropical gyre regions, you might occasionally find a fragment of plastic or two in the net. But here, there were routinely tens, hundreds, and sometimes even thousands of pieces of plastic, all of which were smaller than your pinky fingernail, being collected with the plankton. So there was clearly something very different going on here, but it was not what I was expecting to find in the, quote, Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We're talking about microplastics here. What exactly are they and how much is out there? Well, microplastics are a term that's sort of loosely used to describe small bits of plastic. These are plastic bits that probably originated from larger items, most of which originated from consumer items that we're all familiar with. There's also a class of microplastics that start out in a very small size range of millimeters or smaller, things like microbeads used in cosmetic products or industrial scrubbers or the sort of raw material of plastic products, which are called industrial resin pellets. How much is out there is really unknown from environmental data like plankton net data in the ocean. We can account for about tens of thousands of tons of plastic, which is certainly a large amount, but 
we think there's probably a lot more out there that we just haven't been able to account for. Is most of this plastic floating around in the water, or are these pieces accumulating in specific places? Well, it depends on the plastic. So only certain types of plastic can float. If you look at the bottom of your everyday objects that you find in your house, you'll see a a recycling code or a plastic resin code. And those that are numbered 2, 4, and 5 are made of polyethylene and polypropylene. These are the materials that can float. So when these enter the ocean as large pieces, as large items, they can break down into these small pieces over time, and they're just passively carried along by ocean currents. So the currents carry them to places where they're going to naturally accumulate. And these are very large places called subtropical gyres. That's where we see a lot of the floating debris, but we also know that plastics are very abundant in beach sediments around the world, and recently they've also been found in sea ice cores collected in the Arctic Ocean. The class of plastics that sink, things like your water bottle or soft drink bottle that might be sitting on your desk, those are denser than seawater, and so those are potentially abundant on the seafloor, but the seafloor is a much more difficult place to study, so we actually know very little about how much plastic is sitting on the seafloor globally. What makes them harmful? I mean, besides that they exist, are they bad for the environment? Are they bad for health? What do we know about that? Well, I think that's a major question. And we're basically conducting a really large experiment. We're adding huge amounts of this synthetic material to the marine environment, and we're really not sure what the full consequences might be. Things that we do know are that as the plastic items break into smaller and smaller pieces, they're more accessible to a very wide range of marine organisms. So organisms as small as invertebrates and as large as whales have been found with these little bits inside their guts. We also know that certain plastic materials are very, very effective as sponges for toxic pollutants that are already present in seawater, things like DDT and PCBs. So not only are these little plastic pieces being eaten, they also contain these contaminants. So one major focus of research currently is asking the question, can these toxins on the ingested plastics transfer into the tissues of the organisms that eat them? At this point, from laboratory work, we know that this is certainly possible. What we don't know is whether or not this presents a significant risk to these organisms in the natural environment. Mm -hmm. What about getting rid of all this plastic? Is there a way to take it back? In my opinion, there is no feasible way to take most of this plastic out of the ocean. If you're talking about large items like derelict fishing gear or large debris that might wash ashore on beaches, I think there are removal possibilities. But in terms of the microplastics, these are very widespread over huge expanses of ocean, and I simply don't think that we have the resources that would be needed to trawl the ocean. But more importantly, I think you could do more damage by removing organisms that are at the base of the food web that are of similar size. If you remember, we use plankton nets to collect these pieces to try to understand how many are out there, and those nets are designed to collect plankton. So I think that removal is not only not feasible, it also doesn't address the problem that more plastic is going to be entering the ocean. That doesn't address the sort of flowing tap of plastics. Right. So that does leave the question of how do we prevent this from happening? What are some of the major sources of plastic ending up in the ocean? So the sources are well known. We know that waste that has been lost as litter or perhaps is not properly managed can make its way into the ocean by pathways including rivers or being washed to sea on beaches or carried offshore as runoff or in wastewater. And winds also can carry plastic out to sea. 
We also know there are maritime sources, even though it's illegal to dump plastic anywhere in the world's oceans, there are things like lost cargo or lost fishing and aquaculture gear that are contributing to this plastic in the ocean. And then also a large factor is catastrophic events, things like hurricanes and tsunamis and floods, which carry large material of all kinds into the ocean. So we, we know well what the sources are. Yet we don't yet know which is the largest source. So what might be a way to actually slow down the deposition of plastic into the ocean then? Well, I think it certainly is worth trying to find the biggest leaks, so to speak. So is there a particular river or a particular watershed or region of the world that we can target with our resources to prevent waste from entering the ocean, for example? But in the long term, I think we need to reduce our generation of plastic waste by fighting this notion that plastic items are disposable. Disposable makes you think that they somehow disappear. And they don't disappear, and and even when properly contained, they're not always recycled, for instance. So ultimately, I think what we need to do is to realize that plastic is a valuable resource. It should be selectively used and then captured at the end of its useful life, as opposed to being lost to the landfill or to the environment. All right, Kara, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Kara Lavender-Law and Richard C. Thompson write about the fate of microplastics in this week's issue. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a surprise in Brazil. Perhaps the mention of Brazil at this point in time only brings to mind the ongoing World Cup matches. But another event has put Brazil in the headlines this week. Right, Dave? That's right, Sarah. This is a very interesting story about an uncontacted tribe in the forests of the Amazon. And believe it or not, there are still tribes out there in this world that have not had contact with the outside world. And this is one of those tribes. This tribe lived in very dense rainforest and was along the upper Envira River in the state of Acre. What actually prompted this contact from the tribe? Well, researchers are a little unclear, but uh, there's some speculation that a lot of these tribes have been forced into closer contact with other people, either due to things like logging, the cocaine trade, other people occupying these areas. And this particular tribe, which is probably composed of about three dozen individuals, actually seems to have been raiding some of the local villages and trying to steal things like machetes and other tools, which suggests that there was a conflict that was about to happen. And what's really fascinating here is it seems that this tribe actually willingly made contact with the outside world. Late last month, a group of them approached a team of Brazilian government scientists and sort of made themselves known. You know, as you said before, this isn't the only uncontacted tribe that the Brazilian government knows about. And in fact, other uncontacted tribes have come to the surface over the decades. Those encounters have had some pretty grim results. What can be done to prevent the same things from happening again? Right. One of the big problems is they have been tribes in the past, and what happens is when they come into contact with the outside world, they tend to come down with some diseases that we, we don't really think about a whole lot anymore, things like whooping cough, other diseases caught from people that these people have no immunity to. That's a real concern with this new group as well. And so what experts are saying is one of the really important things that has to happen is constant medical supervision of these people to make sure that their first contact with the outside world isn't a fatal one. 
So do the researchers that are helping with this and are observing these tribes from afar, do they know anything about why some of the tribes choose isolation? Well, we might think that a lot of these tribes choose isolation because they just don't want to have anything to do with the outside world. But one of the experts says that actually a lot of them are curious about other people and the rest of the world, but they're just afraid. And that's what keeps them isolated. Next up, we have a story on a potential new sniffer. If you've ever been to a science museum, you've probably seen and maybe even touched a Van de Graaff generator. These are shiny metal spheres that, when touched, cause one's hair to stand on end. And now researchers have found a new practical use for these devices. That's right. More than making your hair stand on end anyways. What is interesting about these generators is they don't just uh, make a goofy fun at the science museum. They actually apply about 400,000 volts to your body, which, believe it or not, is safe. But what that does is it actually electrostatically charges the skin's surface. Now, here's why that's important. There's a machine that's commonly used in, ma- in laboratories called a, a mass spectrometer. What this machine does is it identifies what a substance is by ionizing it, that is giving that substance an electrical charge, whether it's a vial of proteins or DNA or, or what have you. The question is, could we do something similar with human skin? And you could think of applications for that if you're traveling through the airport. Do you have drugs on your body? Do you have maybe bomb residue on your body? Even things like alcohol intoxication screening. But the question is, how do you ionize <laughs> all of this stuff that's on your body? And that's where that's where the Van de Graaff generator comes in. They tried this on real people. And I have two questions. Did their hair stand up? And two, what were they able to detect when they ionized the chemicals on the skin of the people? Right. They only tried this on one person, actually, and his hair did stand up. Um, And he basically had on his body various things. He had substances like explosive residue, solvents, flammable solvents, cocaine, even acetaminophen. And what he did was he touched the Van de Graaff generator with one hand, and with the other hand, he pointed very close to the mass spectrometer. And the mass spectrometer was actually able to pick up these electrically charged particles on his skin, and lo and behold, it was able to identify what these particles were. The theme of this article seems to be that you could bring this to the airport and suddenly start a whole new detection regime on passengers. How far away is that scenario? Well, this is still pretty much um, in the prototype phase right now, but researchers do say that they feel like this is a much cheaper potentially more accurate alternative to some of the other stuff that we've got out there. Definitely less invasive, unless you consider being shocked by 400,000 volts invasive. So lastly, we have a story on the panda diet. Pandas live on a restricted diet. They're not just vegetarian, but bambooitarian, as in they only eat the bamboo plant. Being pretty hefty bears, this is long had researchers wondering how exactly they get all the nutrition they need from such a woody plant. So, Dave, do they have specialized guts for this? They don't, actually, and that's something you might expect. But pandas are a type of bear, and uh, most bears are carnivores, which means pandas pretty much have the same mechanics as any other bear. They've got a simple stomach and a short, small intestine, which is really perfect for digesting meat, not so great for digesting plants, especially an all-bamboo diet. They certainly don't have the four stomachs that cows have, which you really need to be able to process plants efficiently. In this study, the researchers spent a really long time following bears around, about six years. Where were they and what measurements were they taking? They were in the mountains of China, and what they were trying to figure out is exactly what 
are these pandas eating that's helping them survive? And they looked at three main nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and calcium in the bamboo plants that the pandas ate. So they bring together two factors here, the nutritional content of the plants and the location of the bears. What conclusions were they able to come to? Well, what they found is that these pandas perform a pretty intricate juggling act in order to survive. They're constantly switching off not only what type of bamboo they're eating, but even the part of the bamboo plant that they're eating. So, for example, during mating season in the spring, pandas are feeding on young wood bamboo shoots, which are rich in nitrogen and phosphorus. In June, when the wood bamboo shoots have matured and they contain fewer nutrients, the pandas migrate to higher elevations and start eating young arrow bamboo shoots. And then when the nutrients of these bamboo shoots start to decline, and also neither of these is very high in calcium, which the pandas also need, the pandas next switch sometime in mid-July to young arrow bamboo leaves, which are rich in calcium. Chasing their nutritional components all across these different areas uh, has some repercussions for their offspring, right? That's right. Pandas have a sort of unusual reproductive cycle. Their embryos actually undergo something called delayed implantation, where the embryo stays in a state of arrested development in the mother's uterus until it attaches and resumes growth. And this is all tied to the availability of calcium. So when the mother gets pregnant, not enough calcium is available to properly nourish the fetus. And so the fetus actually has to sort of suspend its development until these plants or the parts of the plants that the plant is really need to eat that are rich in calcium start growing and the fetus can resume development again. So not only do they have trouble with giving birth to babies, but they also suffer in the winters? These pandas have, because they have this very complicated juggling act, there's little left to chance. And even when they do things perfectly, they're still really dealing with very low nutrient levels in their diet. This is especially a problem in the winter. Nutrient levels drop a lot. And that helps explain why researchers have observed a lot of panda deaths occurring right in the months following the winter. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a bird, an ancient bird, with the longest known wingspan of any bird. It's actually longer than a stretch limousine. Also a story about physicists spotting the source of mysterious oh-my-god particles. That's actually what some people call them. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about six vials of smallpox that have turned up in a U.S. laboratory. Also a story about why European neuroscientists are rebelling against the European Union's Human Brain Project. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.